We are living in an American culture that has shifted from tolerant to cancel culture, from supportive to disruptive, from decent to rude, from optimistic to cynical, and from relatively safe to increasingly violent. Many are willing to exchange their liberty for a form of socialism. Through this podcast, we will chart a course to get America back on track. Hi, I am Allie Farah, daughter of Barry Farah. My dad's a best-selling author, CEO across six industries, and former candidate for governor of Colorado. He is also a private pilot, adventurer, and engaging life coach. I should know. Through Culture Shift, my dad will systematically deliver a fresh and compelling path that will help you create your own American dream. Hello. Great to be with you again. Welcome to the Barry Farah Show, Culture Shift. This show is all about your success in life, and your success depends on freedom. So, who invented freedom? Today we look at the author of freedom. From a social science perspective, freedom is the state of being free. Assuming you're not using your freedom to impose restrictions on other people's freedom, freedom is when there's no coercion. It's when there's uh, nobody getting bullied to get on their knees. There's no restriction. When there's freedom, you can believe what you want. You can worship in accordance with your own beliefs and assemble with whom you choose. There's no censorship. When there's freedom, you're not forced into one lane of thought. You're not canceled because you disagree. You can promote your beliefs without fear. So who's the author of freedom? God, the Father. Now you might say, I don't believe in God. I hope to persuade you that he exists and that he cares for you, but no pressure. If you don't agree, thanks for coming along anyway for the ride. At the very beginning was God. In heaven, before people and before anything evil happened, there was freedom. God gave everyone in heaven the freedom to choose and the freedom to choose to worship him or not. Lucifer could have used his freedom to worship a good and awesome God, but he chose to use his freedom against God. Lucifer didn't have ex nihilo creative power. Only God can create absolutely something from absolutely nothing. But just as an architect has power to create the design of a home, Lucifer could honor God and create worship or dishonor him and create havoc. And when Lucifer chose to disobey God, Lucifer fashioned evil. God could have coerced Lucifer into obedience, but God's not like that. He doesn't force you into belief. We find from the Bible that God offers relationship and friendship, and no friendship is forced. On the one hand, God gave freedom where a third of the heavenly beings chose to do evil things. On the other hand, the freedom God gave allowed two-thirds of the heavenly beings who saw God for who he is, gave them the ability to honor him in all ways. Likewise, God could have created humans that had a robotic element where they would be immune to evil. But that would denigrate their autonomy. The talented artist can introduce horror or produce life-giving experiences. The inventive leader can abuse power or add value. The Christian idea is that there's no leg up for being born rich and no disadvantage for being born in poverty. The path to reconciliation with God is the same for everyone. It's belief. And that equalizes everyone. All have equally fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3, 23. All have an equal need for God. Everyone receives receives him with an equal access to becoming a child of God, 
John 1, 12. God's not going to coerce you, though, to do what's best for you, but he invites you, as it pertains to people, governing other people, God warned us to limit the power of a government. This is true even if the people identify themselves as the people of God. And you can find a story all around that in 1 Samuel 8. This is a time where the people wanted to have a more centralized power structure, and they wanted to have a king like the other countries all around them. And God warned them through Samuel that that would result in higher taxes and a loss of property rights, among other things. The reason is that people always tend toward wanting to control others. And if people have too much power over other people, bad things happen. And throughout history, we see this bearing out. In the 300s, as Christianity was taking hold, it became the state religion under Constantine in 313, actually. There was no support in the Bible for the power of the government to be used to force belief. Nevertheless, that was the case. In the East Roman Empire, they added an idea to the simple Christian concept, and this idea was a man-made idea. And basically what they said is that the high priest would have direct connection to God on behalf of everyone else. Well, this exacerbated the problem of the overlap of power between government and religion. It was not a good idea. The Christian crusades were violent and the opposite of the Christian idea of freedom. They wiped everyone out that disagreed with them. Most of history was a vying for power, killing, and conquest. And unfortunately, these stories of like the Crusades, as awful as they were, many people look at that and equate Christianity with these horrible acts of violence. But there wasn't anything Christian about them. Happily, during the Reformation, 1500 to 1700, things changed pretty dramatically. Calvin and Luther rediscovered the simplicity of the Christian idea. This is the concept that you as an individual are responsible for your own guilt, and you have total control of your own belief. And wonderfully, a Christian does not need any special human standing. You can be poor and uneducated and still be a child of God. A Christian simply believes in the work of Christ. Belief and beholding God requires turning from opposition to God as well. But the great thing about the Christian message is that belief results in a one-on-one -on -one relationship. It's you and God. Well, during the Reformation, this concept was supported with exceptional academic rigor and was broadly reintroduced. There were some clumsy fits and starts, but the world changed. Millions around the world read the Bible for themselves. Thousands of Christian leaders returned to the straightforward gospel, and it was made so academically clear by people like Calvin and Luther and others. During this time, ideas were swirling on how government could get it right on a number of issues. Among those issues was the freedom to practice your belief however you felt inclined. Funny enough, even well-meaning Christians didn't get it right out the gate, even those that came from a persecuted past. In the 1600s, the Puritans came to the New World to have freedom of religion. They wanted a virtuous society, so they introduced these things called blue laws. Now, these are obligations that were mostly related to regulations of public activities on the Sabbath, on Sunday, and these laws still exist. You'll get a kick out of this. Did you know on Sunday you can't sell alcohol in Arkansas, Mississippi, or New Mexico, other states too? You know you can't sell cars in Colorado, Maryland, Michigan, Minnesota, Oklahoma, Illinois, and other states. This one's amazing. You can't shop for clothes or electronics in New Jersey on a Sunday. You can't hunt in Maine or Pennsylvania on a Sunday. However, 
in Pennsylvania, you can kill a crow on a Sunday. Things get kind of silly when you try to legislate virtue. Though states could choose to govern themselves however they pleased, these blue laws would not be imposed by the federal government. The federal government would view those as an overreach, attempting to enforce religious belief. But we get ahead of ourselves. After the Reformation swept the West, a couple hundred years of debate culminated in a largely agreed-upon concept. The founders of America were all over the map on specific tactics, but the strategy was largely agreed upon. To build a democratic republic, it would require three things. Number one, it would require a virtuous people. If you expect people to govern themselves, they need to have some moral bearing. It would require people of faith. The source of virtue comes from a belief in God, an ultimate ruler over right and wrong. And it would require a free people. Faith is not possible without freedom. It cannot be coerced. Os Guinness reintroduced this concept in his book, The Golden Triangle of Freedom. Freedom falls apart without virtue. Virtue has no compass without faith. And faith isn't real without freedom. In an endeavor to pull this off, the Constitution just dealt with infrastructure, checks and balances, and that sort of thing. Many believe the rights were assumed, but freedom rights were not enumerated specifically in the Constitution. As a result, there was a powerful holdout, Massachusetts. Now, Rhode Island rejected ratifying the Constitution 11 times and only narrowly passed it after everyone else did. But the 900-pound gorilla at the time of getting the Constitution passed was Massachusetts. They just wouldn't sign off on the Constitution unless there were other rights that were adopted. There, there were other opponents of the U.S. Constitution as well, and they basically felt that the freedom rights needed to be hard-coded in some form in the Constitution itself. So James Madison convinced them to approve the Constitution with a promise to introduce those other rights quickly. Even then, the U.S. Constitution passed in Massachusetts by a narrow vote of 187 to 168. So Madison was from Virginia, but he was very articulate. He was an erudite guy. He later became the fourth president of the United States. But his greatest achievement is that he's considered the father of the Constitution. And there's a few reasons for this. He wrote 29 of the 85 Federalist Papers. These essays are considered among the most thoughtful and persuasive discussions on political science and constitutional republic in history. He wanted to make sure the government would be strong enough to exert power against enemies, but at the same time, limit its power against its own citizens. He believed government strength should be used to support freedom rights. He's a really famous for arguing that there should be three separate branches of power at the federal level, and that would serve as a check of, of power on one branch becoming too powerful. He also argued, as did others, that the state should have some power, which would balance out the power of the federal government. That became the Tenth Amendment. He wanted a pre-preamble. So in addition to the preamble in the Constitution you have now, he wanted to include the concept of we the people again, and specifically the freedom rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Well, that pre-preamble didn't make it into the Constitution. Nevertheless, after the Constitution was passed by Congress and sent out to the states for ratification, he had the political credibility to hound the House of Representatives to remain true to the commitment to add freedom amendments to the Constitution. So originally, he came up with 17. 
And as his 17 amendments made it through committees in Congress, they were consolidated and reduced to 12 amendments. What's funny is that one of those rejects became the 27th Amendment in 1992. That restricts the ability of Congress to change its own pay during a session. It's a good idea. Anyway, the 12 amendments that came out of Congress were then sent to each state for ratification. They were reduced to 10 amendments. So in 1791, these amendments were ratified. They're called the Bill of Rights. That also helped Rhode Island finally come along. Enshrined as part of the U.S. Constitution, these amendments are all about keeping the infrastructure of the federal government heavily bent toward protecting people from government. As Madison said it, we fortify the rights of the people against the encroachments of the government. Our Bill of Rights followed the brilliance of the thou shalt not concept that was retrieved from the Ten Commandments. This approach maximizes freedom. Rather than attempting to list all the things government can do, the document simply states what shall not be done. Congress shall make no law. So the first part of the first right is the freedom to believe. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Makes a lot of sense. Government shall make no law that buttresses any particular religion, and it shall not make any law that prohibits the ability to freely exercise whatever your belief might be. This civic infrastructure is actually from the Bible. Here's just a few examples. Number one, faith requires freedom. With faith, man can gain God's approval, according to Hebrews 11, 1 and 2. Faith is the assurance of things that are hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their approval. Whether you're talking about Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Moses, or the saints who died for Christ, they all received a good report through faith. And what's faith? It's the choice to believe in and trust God. Faith requires freedom. And without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him, Hebrews eleven six. So that's the first. Second, freedom allows the best ideas to win. If you go back in the Old Testament, you'll find Joshua, who's assembling all the tribes of Israel, all the elders, all the heads, the judges, and all those officers, and all these leaders. And he recounts what God's done. It's a pretty impressive and compelling list of God's faithfulness and conquest. And he says this to all those people that are assembled. He's old now. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It's Joshua 24, 15. So all freedom carries with it risk, and he gave them this choice. But... It really worked here. After Joshua died, Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord, of Israel, that the Lord had done for Israel, according to Joshua 24, 31. Number three, freedom of preference on a doctrinal issue is a Christian idea. Some people want to go to church on a Saturday, some people on Sunday. Romans 14, 5 says, look, Embrace the freedom to choose for yourself. One person esteems one day is better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Uh, Similar to this, Christians are not supposed to judge each other. Your freedom is not to be judged by another man's conscience. 
according to 1 Corinthians 10, 29, he says, I don't mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? A fourth item is that freedom of religion is derived from a Jesus concept of a distinct realm argument. So Jesus establishes this distinct realm argument about taxes. He's, he's asked about it, and he proposes this question of who has authority over the tax system. The context of this is you've got these Pharisees, they're religious leaders. You've got these Herodians, they're political guys, kind of a political family. And they both felt threatened by Jesus. So they team up to try to trip Jesus up. Uh, They ask him this question. If Jesus answers the question of uh, saying, yes, you're supposed to pay taxes, he'll lose favor among the burdened, taxed, overtaxed people. If he says, don't pay taxes, he'll be accused of insurrection. One side of the coin was a profile of Tiberius Caesar. He had asked for this coin. Around the perimeter, the inscription was Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. So Jesus says, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they're like, well, uh, Caesar's. Then he said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And hearing this, they were amazed and leaving him, they went away. That's in Matthew 22. The distinct realm argument basically says this, civil government should allow freedom in religious doctrine. It should allow freedom in worship and beliefs about God. But the church should not use its power to involve itself in enforcing a specific religious view through the government. Totalitarian states try to suppress the church and put everything under the realm of the state. A state like an Islamic state attempts to abolish the independent civil government and put everything under the control of Islamic religious leaders. But understand that Jesus said, render to God the things that are God's. In other other words, governments should stay the heck away from the church and not get in the way. Civil government is wrong to govern things that are God's. The church appoints its own leaders, preaches its own sermons. It's not the government's job. But the government should protect the freedom to believe, even though it shouldn't insert itself in the specific affairs of the church. When you allow true freedom of thought and belief, the best ideas will win the day. Another thought is that freedom of religion allows for a genuine faith in God. Christian belief is a positive force in culture. Christians are encouraged to practice virtue, honor, thrift, hard work, delayed gratification, respect, kindness, self-control, justice, mercy. They're also encouraged to practice common sense self-restrictions, to live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God, honoring everyone loving the brotherhood. And then further in a place like Romans 12, be authentic, despising evil, holding fast to what's good, love each other, basically trip over each other to build each other up and help. That, that helps any culture. So the founders were primarily Christians. Those who were deists were still heavily influenced by the civic structure of the Judeo-Christian ideas of due process, private property, equal protection under the law, the freedom to believe and practice your belief. So if the author of freedom is God and he gave us freedom to believe or not, it makes sense that the first part of the first Bill of Rights is freedom of religion. It was intended to prohibit a church of a particular denomination from forcing upon another denomination a state-sponsored church. Religious freedom would be protected. The free exercise of religion would be safe, but there would be no official church sponsored by the federal government. It was not intended to prohibit honoring God in the government square. 
That's why the Ten Commandments are displayed 47 times in our Supreme Court building. In fact, to this point, there's a biblical precedent for even disobedience. In Acts, you'll find that the followers of Christ were told not to preach in the public square. When they had brought them, they stood them before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. You'll find that in Acts 5. This belief among the founders was explicit. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. As the states adopted their own constitution, they all had some form of a freedom of religion clause themselves. For example, even a relatively late comer like Colorado, they didn't come along until 1876, the centennial state. They have a preamble that honors God. It says, we the people of Colorado with profound reverence for the supreme ruler of the universe. And then in its constitution, right after it talks about boundaries in Article 2, it has 30 Bill of Rights, by the way, not up front. By now it does, as we've added all these amendments. But the fourth that was original to the constitution in the Bill of Rights of the Constitution of Colorado, it starts out by protecting all expressions of faith in all forms, and then it continues to clarify with a common sense component that says, look, you can't get out of your contract or you can't do something immoral by using religion as a pretext. And finally, it concludes with protection from any preference granted to one doctrine over another. And so a whole bunch of other states did something similar, but basically they all tried to follow the first part of the First Amendment in the United States Constitution's Bill of Rights. So what's the problem? Well, Humanists, progressives, Marxists, socialists, and communists have all written that they don't like to be under a higher authority. And they don't really like the preamble to the Declaration of Independence. They try really hard to make the case for no creator, which means there would be no inalienable right to life, liberty, and property. But when that happens, you lose your plumb line and good and evil become opaque. Regardless, progressives, humanists, socialists, they were the majority in the Supreme Court during the FDR days. And starting in 1947, the Supreme Court found that they could make law from the bench that went all the way up into the 70s and beyond. They limited expression in public spaces. Public schools can't teach that God created the universe, even though that's scientifically much more believable, or that God even exists Public schools can't teach moral values that are embedded in the Ten Commandments or that God's a judge. In 1971, the Supreme Court excluded religious speech from more areas of public life, school, public monuments, display of Ten Commandments, graduation ceremonies, and even a football game. These rulings do not honor the free exercise thereof clause. You know, Thomas Jefferson attended church in the Capitol? But humanists, progressives, and socialists argue there's no divine purpose for mankind, no life after death, no judgment day. So when their ideas win the day, schools are more dangerous, neighborhoods are more perilous, mob violence is not checked, people are less respectful of authority, and society is more on edge. Government needs to protect freedom of religion. So people of faith have room to make a positive impact on culture. There's a dangerous move to censor people of faith. Government has encroached beyond the First Amendment. Government needs to limit itself and get out of the business of restricting religious freedom. Next week, we'll look at the freedom to speak. We're all about freedom and your success. 
Culture has shifted away from the good that comes from the biblical framework that led to America as a great nation. But you can help shift it back for good. Until next week, here's a devotional thought for you. The presence of God on earth is a sweet thing. It's a place of security, joy, and peace. It's where a sliver of heaven is manifested right here and right now. And according to 2 Corinthians 3.17, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. We'll see you next week. Hi, I'm David Farah. Thank you for listening to my dad's podcast, The Barry Farah Show, Culture Shift. Click subscribe now to be sure you don't miss an episode. Share this podcast with your friends on social media and give The Barry Farah Show your five-star rating. Check out today's show notes below this episode and at theberryferrisshow.com. This podcast is also available in video format at The Barry Ferris Show on YouTube. See you next time.